Welcome to Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, bringing the message today out of the book of Revelation. I thank you for joining us. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through this entire book, and what a challenge that is proving to be. The context for today is found in Revelation chapter 13. And I think you're going to see before the next couple of weeks is over, or the next several messages are over, this is quite the task just working through Revelation chapter 13. So for the context today, it's found in verse 1 of this amazing chapter. The Word of God reads, beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 13. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear. In his mouth was the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, and his throne, and great authority. Now, I think you can tell by the reading of this, this is going to be one that is going to demand some very special and careful thought and careful attention. Uh, Things that are here are going to demand some scrutiny and some careful comparison of other scriptures and a tremendous amount of insight. Uh, These things uh, are what we read. We read passages like this, and it confuses people. I've talked to many a pastor who just can't get past verses like this that will say it's it's confusing, it's it's hopelessly confused. But, you know, I understand why unregenerate or unsaved people or unbelievers would read the book of Revelation and think that. But I don't have any reason to believe that it's that should that be that way for Christians. Uh, to those of us who are believers and, 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 and we're saved and we know our Lord Jesus Christ, we are in his word. Uh, to us, the promise is given way back in the first chapter of this book. In chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so it's a very familiar passage as we look look into this. And we know that, like in verse 9 of the same chapter, uh, if anyone has ears, let him hear. That means more than just to hear the words. It means to comprehend and to understand what is being said. The Lord has given us his word. No matter how difficult and challenging it might be, we, under the, the direction uh, of the Holy Spirit, Uh, can read and study this and as the Holy Spirit takes this word into our hearts and illumines it and gives it meaning. Uh, But it takes careful thought and study as we look at these deep truths of the word of God. They don't have to be confusing in such a way as you just, just have to ignore it and you're scared to read it. I've actually talked to pastors who were frightened of the book of Revelation, didn't want to touch it. I think they're just missing a tremendous, tremendous blessing. In fact, I have even served under pastors like this. But as we get into this, I want you to think about something. Our world is looking for a leader. I have heard some, I've read that, and I've heard this myself, some 27 times since 1930, the information has become forth through the media that the world it needs a person. The world is looking for a person. In fact, this was quoted back from the Prime Minister of Belgium in 1930. He said this, 
What we need is a person, someone of highest order or great experience, of great authority, of wide influence, and great energy. We need him to come quickly. We need him, be whether he be civilian or military man, no matter what his nationality, who will cut through all of the red tape, shove out all of the rhetoric from politicians, wake up the people, and unify our people together into action. You know, I've heard that many times. I've, in fact, it's said that some 37 times, 22 of those times are from 19, uh, 2001 to, to today. That the world is really looking for someone to come on the scene to galvanize our people or unify the people into one, what they call now, a global look at the world that we need to be working towards a global community, and that is what is happening behind the scenes. And so we're going to take a look at this chapter. The first ten verses of chapter 13 describe a figure of, of a person to come into human history that is commonly known as the Antichrist. Now, uh, I'm not going to prove this is the Antichrist, but I'm going to give you all kinds of information and hopefully cover enough ground uh, through this chapter to lay out the groundwork so that you can begin to see here. Much of the imagery here in Revelation 13 parallels the prophecy of Daniel. And so we, we look at that and we realize what's here and we understand some of this that uh, seems to be the most graphic, the most thorough, the most penetrating, the most unforgettable, the most dramatic presentation of the Antichrist anywhere in Scripture. But it's not the first. In fact, when we read information coming from John himself, who wrote the book of Revelation, he said, like in, in Revelation or in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and so he's made reference to it. And so the people back then in, in, in biblical days understood that there was an Antichrist coming even though they knew there were many antichrists already in the world and there would be many more. There's going to be one that's going to stand out among all the others. This was common teaching to the people of the New Testament day. Paul talked about it. John talked about it. It's in Thessalonians. It's in both chapters of Thessalonians. It's mentioned briefly in Corinthians. It's mentioned in John's writings. And so we, we know that they were referencing the fact that a, an Antichrist is coming. Well, the question I have is, where did they get their information? I mean, I know John was writing it, and I know Paul was writing it, but I think the answer would come by looking at the prophecy of Daniel. We're not going to cover that right this minute, <clears throat> but as we go through Revelation chapter 13, we're going to be in and out of the book of Daniel, especially Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel chapter uh, 9, and then uh, several other places we're going to look. And so we'll find that some of the information that is given there parallels so closely to this one that we're going to call the Antichrist, who is pictured here in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Now, as I get into this, I want to remind you again that there are many names in the Bible given to the Antichrist. And we, we, we're going to cover some of those, and Revelation will cover, cover several of those. But there are places, there's 25 different titles given to the Antichrist. 
all of which help paint a picture of the most despicable man who will ever walk the earth. And that's who we're looking at. That's who we're going to be studying over the next several weeks is this one who is called the Antichrist. A, a horrible uh, picture of, of things that we, 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 we even would, would, would hate to discuss with someone except to know that it's in prophecy. Uh, this Antichrist will be a feared individual. Many will respect him. Many will understand him and his power. And many of the believers are going to realize that this is a terrible, evil, wicked individual. In the book he is referred in the book of Revelation, he is referred to as the rider on the white horse in Revelation chapter six, two. He's referred to as the beast in Revelation eleven seven. And the beast rising up out of the sea, he's referred to here in this chapter, chapter 13, verse 1. He's also known as the little horn of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 8. The king of fierce features, Daniel, chapter 8, verse 23. The one who understands sinister schemes, Daniel 8, 23. The prince who is to come, Daniel 9, 26. The one who makes desolate, Daniel 9, 27. The willful king, Daniel 11.36. The man of sin, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. The son of perdition, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. The lawless one, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Now, it's not possible to know the precise identity of this future world ruler. But we are going to study things that the, the, the Bible gives us so that we can understand some of this terrible uh, individual. There, there are given to us these names, and from these names we can understand pretty much a lot of what we need to see in this individual. Now, as we get into this, I want you to understand that the word Antichrist is a word that we use. It's, it's, it means against Christ. There's also another word here. It's, it's pseudo-Christos, false Christ. He is against Christ by pretending to be Christ. That's who the Antichrist is. He is a master imitator, uh, and so he is imitating Christ, wanting to be Christ or imitate Christ so that the people will think that they need to worship him. He has many predecessors. There are many false Christs, says Jesus, and someday we'll hear, here's Christ, there's Christ. Do not believe it. We know there's going to be many, many of them. We know that in 1 John 2, 18, and other places, but in Revelation 13, we know that there is much yet to be revealed about this individual. In fact, is when I compare what I used to teach in the say the 90s at these large prophetic singles conferences that I would do. I, I mean, the, the world has changed. The world is rapidly changing now, but it has changed. Information I had then was was uh, so outdated. When you look at information that is available today. And so we study this and we realize we're not really, we understand this, and I need to say this, we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're studying it because he's in Scripture. We're looking for Christ. We're looking for our Savior. We're looking for the rapture of the church. This will happen after the rapture of the church. And so when we see this, we need to understand that is what is happening. So we've seen this individual already in, in Revelation. Again, Revelation chapter 6 on the white horse. Revelation chapter 7 is a, is a beast who comes up and destroys the two witnesses that are going to be preaching. 
There he's called a beast that comes up out of the abyss who makes war with the two witnesses and kills them and overcomes them. And that is given to us in Revelation chapter 11. So we met him in chapter 6, chapter 11, and we saw some things about him. We've made some conclusions about him. But now we're going to see him in full-blown picture of who he really is. We're going to see a lot more about his activity as we move further into this book, especially when we go through 13 and into chapters 16 and 17. Now, I understand that this could be very, very confusing. I'm only going to try to cover just a very little bit today, uh, so don't get frustrated with me. Uh, I will be teaching on this, and we're going to try to cover as much as possible. I'm going to be painting for you the big picture of what the prophecy actually teaches. Between Revelation 13, we will go to Revelation 17, just a tad to show you something that's there. And then we will touch in and out of Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9 and perhaps even 11 and one or two verses in 12. So we're going to see that, but we realize Satan is out to destroy God's people. His last effort, he's about to panic. He's trying to stop the kingdom. Uh, he, this is before he knows he is going to be chained in the pit for a thousand years, which is found in Revelation chapter 20. And so uh, I want you to know that this traumatic and, and, and panic uh, calling forth from this uh, Antichrist, he calls forth this final ruler, is a man. This Antichrist that we see, I know it refers to him as a beast, and we're going to explain that. But I want you to understand that the Antichrist is a man. He is a human being, and we shall see he is a demon-possessed and powerfully so. In other words, he's, he is filled with, a, a, some say he is Satan himself. Uh, don't know exactly, but I'm going to give you what I think about that in just a minute. Maybe he is even perhaps more powerful than any other human man who's ever walked on this planet. Only second to Jesus. Jesus obviously is more powerful. We know that there is no parallel. There's no, there's no even comparison here. Satan gets his power from God. I mean, he, he's allowed to have it by God. Uh, God is the one who is sovereign here. Remember, Satan is not sovereign. Uh, he is going to work through this individual, this man, the last wicked dictator of our, of our world, a supremely evil human leader who culminates Satan's rebellion as the incarnation of his power. So chapter 13 fits perfectly with chapter 12. We saw in chapter 12 that Satan has a war with, with Michael and his archangel. He's kicked out of heaven. And in chapter 13, we're going to see the culmination of it. It takes us all the way to the end of the Great Tribulation period and the final battle in which Satan engages God and Christ as he attempts to get what he's always wanted. And remember, Satan has always wanted a sovereign rule and worship equal to God. So in chapter 12, Satan's cast out of heaven to the earth. In chapter 13, we find him on the earth unleashing his power. In fact, it says at the end of chapter 12, he knows his time is brief. So just a note. Let me give you another note before we get into the outline. I, I, there's so much I need to give you. I just hope I can give you at least a little bit of the scripture today. But just a note. Satan is a spirit. 
I think we need to keep that in mind. He is not somebody uh, running around in a red suit with a painted tail and little horns on the top of his head uh, and carrying a pitchfork. He is a spirit. Spirit does not have flesh and bones. Because Satan is a spirit, he is limited to how he can function in this world. In fact, his operation is severely hindered unless he can function through the bodies using bodies of individuals, humans, and the personalities of people. And remember now, he's got a host of demons working with him. We've already seen in, De- in Revelation chapter 9, he has millions of demons working with him, and his demons along with himself move in and out of people to do their evil work on the earth. They must have these bodies. Certainly, This is clear to anyone who studied the New Testament, especially someone who has read the Gospels. You see it during the time of Jesus. The demonic activity was so real and more prevalent during that time because they were coming up against the Son of God. Now, as we get into this, remember, Satan entered into Judas. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him. Satan himself entered into Judas. We find that in Luke 23. And then let me read you a section from the Gospel of John. I think it's it's so fascinating to read this in the Gospel of John. I went back to it today and read it, and it was just amazing how clear it actually is. In the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 13, beginning in verse 21, we find the story of the Lord's Supper with his disciples uh, on the eve of his crucifixion. Uh, But Jesus tells them, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking around, asking him. uh, They were reclining on Jesus' breast, and one of his disciples said to Jesus, uh, Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom you are speaking. He's leaning back on Jesus' breast and says to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered and said, This is the one whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped his morsel... He took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan, listen to this, Satan then entered into him, Judas. Jesus therefore said to him, meaning he spoke then to the devil himself, Satan himself, said to him, what you do, do quickly. (coughs) And so, I think it's very, very clear that Satan and his demons need human bodies to carry out their earthly agenda. And so when we come to this section of of the book of Revelation, we begin looking at this. You can begin to ask and to begin to realize that uh, this is a demonic activity at at its greatest. They're trying to stop. They know their time is short. They're coming after the believers. They're coming after the nation of Israel, as Revelation chapter 12 made it so vividly clear. So, but there's something that uh, I think uh, that came out this week uh, from someone I was reading. He says that this, in talking about Satan and his uh, running around the world today and all the evil that is present, He says, are you saying, Pastor, that most people are under the control of Satan? This was a question that came to Dr. John MacArthur. And here's the question again. Are you saying that most people are under the control of Satan? And he said, no, all of them are. 
In other words, not most, but all of them are. They are all of their father, the devil. Are you saying that most people, therefore, are influenced by Satan? He says, yes, they walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. That's found in the book of Ephesians. So are you saying that most of them have demonic activity going on in them? Yes, but not all of them are throwing themselves on the fire and cutting themselves. Some of them are, and I quote, in the quote, Jesus has power over that whole dominion. So we realize that's happening. We realize that if you're not a believer, you are of your father, the devil, and that is a, uh, you're following after your family heritage. I know that sounds terrible, and, but that's strictly from the scriptures. In fact, you can read Rome, uh, John, the Gospel of John chapter 8 and see it there for yourself. So when we come to this, it becomes a very interesting thing to, to look at this. Uh, Satan is, is out to destroy the promise of the kingdom that is coming. He's doing whatever he can to prevent Gentile salvation. He needs a human being to do this. He needs a human being. And so you have this tribulation period that's going on. So now that brings me to chapter 13, verse 1. I try not to cover too much of this other stuff, but I just, I just forgive me, but I just have to. Number one, I want you to see a personality. So as we look at this, there's several things I want to say. I'm not going to cover all the way to verse 10 or 8. I'm not even going to cover verse 2. I may not even get through verse 1. But in verse 1, I want you to know there's a personality here. Uh, in fact, we read this, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. But before that, it says, and he stood on the sand of the seashore. Well, that's my version of the New American Standard. Some of them have corrected that now, and they put exactly what it is. But as he is talking about this, the chapter begins. It's really strange. I don't know why people put these division titles in here thinking they're helping us. But it says, and he stood on the sand of the seashore. Well, who is who is he referred to? Because by the time you read a new chapter like this, you tend to forget to look back up to the last chapter. So when you go to the last chapter, which is chapter 12, you see that it's talking about the dragon was enraged with the woman. That's Israel. Went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This describes satanic warfare against believers during the tribulation period. So when it says uh, about the dragon, and he stood on the sand of the seashore, he is the dragon. You want to know who the dragon is? You go back to Revelation chapter 12, the chapter before, and the great dragon of serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Yes, that is Satan himself. So chapter 13 begins with the image of Satan as the great dragon standing on the sands of the seashore. Now, what is significant about that imagery is that when you go to Revelation chapter 20, you see the same kind of imagery there. And you see that uh, Satan is taking his position squarely in the middle of the nations. Uh, when you look at that, and it's referred to the sand of the seashore. He's squarely putting his feet down as a usurper. He's not about to give up this world. He wants to be God of this world. And you can surmise all of that from the fact that he stood on the sand of the seashore. Now, this is figurative language. How do I know that? Well, you can look down just a bit. Look at chapter 13, verse 2. A beast which I saw was like, you see the word like a leopard, his feet were like those of a bear, his mouth was like, that's telling us that it's figurative. Uh, now, we also know it's figurative in verse 13. 
I mean, in, in chapter 13, verse 1, he stood on the sand of the seashore. We know that's figurative because of the rest of the book of Revelation and because of chapter 12, who's just given to us. So, what is the significance here? Is it is putting, it's showing his authority over the nations and the fact that he uh, does not want to give up the world. He takes his place squarely in the midst of the nations. I think that is the picture there, is he stands there. And I believe he does this, and he is summoned, he summons forth the beast. In other words, he's calling for the beast. We don't see that written there, but that's what he's doing. There is this great dragon standing, as it were, symbolically over the nations of the world, as if he possesses them. And immediately John, the narrator here, says, And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Remember, now we're looking at the personality that's found here. The word beast could better be translated monster. It's the same term that we noted in chapter 11, verse 7, the one who killed the two witnesses. It's the same term. The term is uh, translated beast or monster. It's used to describe uh, some ferocious, some vicious, a killing animal. And by the way, it's used 46 times in the New Testament, and 35 of them are in the book of Revelation. So it's a pretty important term. So here's a powerful monster, it says, uh, as the details of this chapter will further reveal, and I believe you understand this monster is, is in two ways, really, a twofold way to look at him. You understand him as a person and a system, both as a king or a kingdom. He has to represent a kingdom because of the complexity of the description, which is about to follow here in verse 1. We're going to see that with the horns, the heads, and the diadems, and the blasphemous names. But yet he's always described with personal pronouns like he uh, or him. And clearly, uh, this is an individual that is a human being and is referred to here. And so we, we see this. He is both a monster, a king, and a kingdom. A way to look at it would be to see the satanic final world empire separate, inseparate from, or inseparable from the satanically empowered man who leads it. And so these two, this beast coming up out of the sea and this uh, dragon who is standing on the seashore is, is, is all tied together. So the dragon, Satan, uh, the dragon who is Satan is expelled from heaven after his defeat, comes down to the earth. He sinks his feet as, uh, as his feet on the sand and holds to the ground and summons out of the sea a great personality so he can fight the last battle with God in Christ. He needs this individual. And so he is saying in this, what we see here, he is, he's been cast out of heaven. He's in on earth. Man, he's, he's going at it. He's, he's going to summon this great personality so that personality can fight. The monster coming up out of the sea is the final satanic empire embodied in this final satanic man. I think it's very clear what this is. This is the Antichrist. In verse 1, coming up out of the sea, a lot of people take that to mean the sea of nations, and it certainly can be, and I think it's part of this. I think there's two ways to look at this. The sea representing the, the nations of the world, uh, uh, or like a troubled sea, says the Old Testament, but I think it's a better understanding, interpretation. I think the sea really is representative of and I, I'm going to have to explain this when it may take this time and next time to do it. I'm just going to mention it now. 
But I think the sea here, when it says, I saw the monster or the beast coming up out of the sea, most conclude it is the nations of the world. And I would say that's true. We see that. Uh, we see it in, in several other parts of Revelation. So John uses it that way a couple of times. But here I think there's something else that is here. I think there is, that's the physical, but this is a spiritual understanding to this. And I think the understanding is that really the sea here is representative of the pit or the abyss. Remember back in chapter 11, verse 7. Let me take you back there, chapter 11, verse 7, and I can begin to kind of halfway build this case for this, meaning this. I think in verse 7 of chapter 11, and when they had finished their testimony, talking about the two witnesses, their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Now, that is using this language. It says he will come up out of the sea, out of the abyss. So we would equate that, in my judgment, the sea with the abyss. Uh in Luke chapter 8, verse 31, the home of fallen angels is talking about there in the place of the incarceration. In Revelation chapter 20, Satan is taken captive. At the beginning of the millennial kingdom, he is thrown into the abyss, shut there and sealed there. It is a pit of demonic torment which demons uh, don't want to be sent. We, I, I remember reading that and teaching that at, uh, at the church. And it was, they confronted Jesus and they begged him, don't send us there. And so what does this say? Well, it says that the Antichrist who dominates the world power is going to be a body containing the spirit. Now listen to this. The spirit that has been called out of the abyss. I said earlier, he's going to be demon-possessed, but who is he demon-possessed? Is it Satan himself or someone else? I think it's someone else that is going to uh, take over his body and he will be straight from the pit. He will be a demon but I think this demon is one that is very formidable. He's very high-powered as far as the rank of demons who is released from the pit at some point, invades the body and the mind of this gifted man who the Bible speaks of as being a great orator, speaker, an intellectual genius. He will have charm. He'll have charisma. He will have astounding leadership ability. This man becomes the body for a spirit directly coming from the pit. If that's not frightening, if I, I don't know what is. If that's not a sign of a very despicable man, a frightening man, a fearful man, a fearless man, then I don't know what is. So what does that say? Well, it says a lot. It says that this man will have a body and he's going to be, it's going to be inhabited by a very formidable uh, demon from the pit. The idea of the sea being a symbol for the pit, by the way, is not new. Uh, th that is found throughout several verses, uh, passages in the Bible. You can go back to the Old Testament and see it. You can go in the New Testament. The Old Testament you find it in Job, uh, chapter 26, Psalms, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, Joel. Uh, there you will find there indications that the sea was often associated with satanic activity and great monsters. It's also interesting to note in Revelation chapter 21. Uh, at the end of Revelation uh, 21, verse 1, it says the new heaven and new earth, and it says there is no longer any sea. 
I don't know really what he's talking about there, John, when he says there will be no sea. The sea always represents what couldn't be seen, the unseen, the dark, the forebodying, the monstrous, the fearful, the threatening, the place of mystery, the place where things were hidden. So I don't know what the sea could be, but is it possible that it's referencing here not just uh, the, the nations, there will all be unified one people there. There won't be separate nations. It could mean that, but it could also mean this uh, sea referencing the demonic activity or the abyss. By the way, uh, there's another interesting note I came across. In Romans it says, who will, descend, who will descend into the abyss? Who will descend into the abyss? You say, what's important about that? Well, here it's important. Is that it's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 13. Only there it says, who will cross the sea? So you have the abyss and the sea used interchangeably. So, here's what I'm saying, and I'm going to have to close it out. I thought I could get further. I cannot. As we look at this, this, I believe the imagery here then is of Satan standing, as it were, planting his feet on the earth. He calls forth this powerful demon who has occupied the proper place in the abyss until this time. He's going to inhabit this man. He now controls this man who controls the empire, which is the monster described. And I think that's what he is talking about. This man, this powerful man, and we only got to the first number on the outline, the personality. Now, the place is the sea, so I did touch that. I didn't mention it, but I did touch the sea. Uh, next week, I'm going to look at the power. I'm going to cover some more of the sea, and then I'm going to look at the power. His horns represent power. And then I'm going to look at the pattern, and that is the diadems on there. So we're going to take a look at this. There's a lot here. Please don't leave me. Uh, come back. Uh, this is an exciting study. Not that we can build a group of people around us to say, man, we're looking for this guy. We're going to try to figure him out. You're never going to figure him out. It just shows us how the world is moving in this direction. The stage is getting set. The, the players are in place. Man, the world is moving fast to get ready for this. I don't know how the rapture can hold off much longer. But we're going to see as we go through here, the interpretation of this and the application of this is going to be astounding. Do not leave this. So for now, this is William Rogers thanking you for joining us today. And please come back and read your Bible. And remember, the time is short. We need to be warning people, praying for people, praying that God will open up our eyes to the possibilities of people all around us who need to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to repent of their sins and to turn to him. Thank you today for listening. Bye-bye.